Secretary Paulson will also meet with finance ministers from the world's 20 leading economies. Through these efforts, the world is sending an unmistakable signal. We're in this together, and we'll come through this together. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. This is where we try and take all this confusing, overwhelming financial, economic crisis news and just make it understandable, interesting, even funny sometimes. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. That was the president you just heard over the chirping birds. I think the CNN people headlined the speech, President Bush appeals for confidence. Confidence has not been the watchword of the day. I don't think too many people on Wall Street listen to the president too carefully. Uh, today is Friday, October 10th. It is 5.37 p.m. here in New York. Yeah, Adam, I've been watching our Twitter crowd today. We're twitter.com slash planet money. And they've spent the day watching the Dow swing around. It looks like it doesn't know which way is up, down, north, south. Can you please tell them what is going on? Well, honestly, I wish I could. I Today, for some reason, this was the day I liked the least. I mean, these have all been overwhelming, confusing, frustrating days, but they've been kind of exciting. And at most days, there's something of a clear narrative. The narrative might change day to day. Today was just confusing. I mean, the Dow, you know, it drops 600 points. You think, oh, I get what's happening. It's a full sell-off. Then it creeps way back up above where it opened. It seemed to be doing it in moments. Dina Temple-Raston yeah. was saying that she thought it was just rumors of this and that, whether the... G7 might do something this weekend. Yeah, I've been hearing rumors all day long. Huge rumors. Oh, the U.S. government is about to bail out Morgan Stanley. The U.S. government is about to start buying tons of banks all over the country. The G7, the the seven big industrialized nations who are meeting in Washington this week, the finance ministers are all meeting in Washington this week. They're going to announce some big decision. None of it has come to pass so far, although who knows, by the time you're listening to this podcast, maybe you'll know stuff we don't. Well, Henry Paulson is talking in just a bit. Yeah. In uh, one hour, we're going to hear from Henry Paulson. It might be a boring old press conference tied to the G7, or he might say we're moving off of money and moving to a barter system. (laughs) Go on the shelves. Whatever it is, you'll find it here at npr.org slash money. We'll be following it even after we publish this podcast. And if you want to know more, it'll definitely be on our blog, npr.org slash money. Yeah. The other thing I've been getting from readers all the time is a question about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. It comes in different forms. The thing is, people out there are listening to John McCain and Barack Obama bat this Fannie and Freddie thing all over the campaign trail. And this weekend, our friends over at This American Life, our partners really, they're diving into the financial crisis again. And you can hear the full show from PRI on public radio stations all over the country. In the clip I'm just about to preview for you, Ira Glass sits down with another friend of ours, Charles Duhigg of the New York Times. Now, Duhigg is a serious, serious guy. He has broken major news about Fannie and Freddie all year, and I don't necessarily get Fannie and Freddie all the way, but Charles Duhigg does. You've probably heard by now, over the last few years, the mortgage industry and the banking industry have been places that were rife with invention, people coming up with all kinds of better mousetraps subprime mortgages and credit default swaps and novel kinds of mortgage-backed securities, all of which have sent the world's economy into a tailspin these last few weeks. As part of our ongoing coverage of that mess, we now turn to the politics of all this. Uh, Last week on our radio show, we uh, debunked an idea you hear a lot from Democrats these days, that this financial mess can be blamed entirely on Republicans deregulating financial markets. Today, uh, we take a look at the other side of the aisle, This past week, it seems to have actually hardened into a point of Republican dogma. 
that the whole financial mess can be blamed on the Democrats. On Wednesday of this past week, I attended a McCain-Palin rally in Lehigh, Pennsylvania. And I was amazed that nearly every person I talked to in this Republican crowd was quite certain who the culprits were behind our whole financial mess. The liberal Democrats in the House encouraged and supported the notion that uh, banks should should be providing loans to people who couldn't afford them in inner city, wherever. The they saw the, the McCain and Bush coming through with the regulations and they refused to do anything about it. Barney Frank said, no, it's okay, no problems, it's running great. And here we are today. In this Republican version of the bailout story, there was a pivotal moment in 2005 when Republicans could have prevented a lot of the mess that we're in now, where they tried to regulate, where they tried to fix it, but the Democrats stopped them. And the key to the whole crisis, they say, was the mortgage companies, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. They say Fannie and Freddie are at the center of the whole thing. Here's John McCain at the second presidential debate on Tuesday. Really the match that lit this fire was Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I'll bet you you may never even have heard of them before this crisis. But you know, they're the ones that with the encouragement of Senator Obama and his cronies and his friends in Washington that went out and made all these risky loans, gave them to people that could never afford to pay back. So so let's just start with the question, did the subprime crisis start with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? Absolutely not. The subprime crisis did not start with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. This is Charles Duhigg, who covers Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and other parts of the subprime crisis for The New York Times. He says that it was not Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, but Wall Street, international investors, brokers, and banks who created and popularized subprime mortgages. Fannie and Freddie didn't get involved in a serious way until relatively late. This huge subprime economy had built. Wall Street came in and they said, we're going to basically buy any loan that anyone can make. And Fannie and Freddie at that point started losing a lot of their market share. So they started competing against Wall Street for worse and worse and riskier and riskier loans. And that in turn further fueled the growth of this thing. So what started out as a kind of small brush fire that was worrisome was fanned over time into a huge, huge blaze. And Fannie and Freddie were an important part of fanning that. But they didn't create the subprime economy. They weren't the single greatest input to the subprime economy. They were part of the problem. Nonetheless, Republicans say that if they'd been allowed to regulate Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac back in 2005, as they'd wanted, it would have prevented much of the current mess. I was the one, I was the one who called at the time for tighter restrictions on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac that could have helped prevent this crisis, could have helped prevent from happening in the first place. And Senator Obama was silent on the regulation of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And his Democratic allies in Congress opposed every effort to rein them in. So, Charles, what, what, what are they talking about? What, what did Republicans try to do a couple of years ago? So in 2005, a couple of Republicans introduced legislation that would have placed greater restrictions on Fannie and Freddie. It would have empowered the regulator to basically have a tighter hold on them. Now, what's important to keep in mind is John McCain didn't actually sponsor that legislation initially. He came to it kind of, you know, months and months after it had been introduced and after a big report had come out saying that Fannie and Freddie are terrible companies. Mm -hmm. Everyone was kind of jumping on and John McCain jumped on to co-sponsor the legislation. People we've interviewed in the Senate have said that John McCain was never a big, you know, bugaboo on Fannie or Freddie, but he did co-sponsor the legislation. He deserves some, some credit for that. The 2005 legislation would have essentially done two things. First of all, it would have 
cut the number of loans that Fannie and Freddie can hold for themselves. Mm -hmm. So it would have avoided part of the problem that Freddie is having right now. And theoretically, it might have caused Fannie and Freddie to stop buying so many risky loans. But that's not a guarantee. In fact, it would have been completely up to the regulator. And the regulator who's holding the position right now is a man named James Lockhart. In the past year, and he was a Bush appointee, in the past year, he actually helped Fannie and Freddie buy more and more riskier loans because Congress over the past year started asking Fannie and Freddie to buy risky loans because they thought that would help the economy. Right now, it's a part of a Republican orthodoxy, it seems, that, that if we had fixed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in 2005, we wouldn't be in the crisis we're in today. Is that true? That's absolutely not true. So if we had fixed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in 2005, the crisis might be different and it might be slightly less, but the crisis would absolutely still be here. Another thing that's come up as a political talking point is, is uh, the question of who associated with who. And Senator McCain said in Pennsylvania this week that executives of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have advised Senator Obama. The executives of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have advised him and he's taken their money for his campaign. In fact, he's received more money from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac than any other senator in history, with the exception of the chairman of the committee overseeing them. The McCain campaign also has an ad linking Barack Obama to an executive at Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Obama has no background in economics. Who advises him? The Post says it's Franklin Raines for advice on mortgage and housing policy. Shocking. Under Raines, Fannie Mae committed extensive financial fraud. Raines made millions. Fannie Mae collapsed. Taxpayers stuck with the bill. Barack Obama. Bad advice. Bad instincts. Not ready to lead. Franklin Raines. Right, which is based on apparently Barack Obama and Franklin Raines once bumped into each other at some type of get-together. What Barack Obama said is that they had one conversation very briefly once. So it's a little disingenuous to say that Franklin Raines was an advisor to Barack Obama. Now, that being said, if you're following the money trail, if you want to say who's taken less or more money from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, Barack Obama, it is absolutely true, is the second highest recipient of lobbying dollars from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now, the reason why what John McCain is saying is a little disingenuous is because his campaign manager, John McCain's campaign manager, a guy named Rick Davis, was a lobbyist for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and took over $2 million from them in lobbying fees to run this group that they had put together to, to try and fight back against more regulation. And in fact, although, he, although Rick Davis left his firm when he joined the McCain campaign, his firm that he still owns a part in was receiving payments from Freddie Mac until earlier this year. Until earlier this year, just until a month or two ago. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, I think it ended in August. I'm not um, mm-hmm. I'm not certain of exactly the date. Yeah. And in fact, I worked on the story sort of breaking that. And what they said, the reason why Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were paying Rick Davis, John McCain's campaign manager, is because they wanted access to John McCain. They thought that maybe he'd become president someday. And so it'd be good to be friends with a guy who's one of his closest aides. In general, Charles Duhigg says, it's true that Republicans have tried to rein in Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae for years. And it's true that in general, Democrats have urged Fannie and Freddie to take on more loans and riskier loans and pushed for loose spending and low interest rates that led to the housing boom. And it's also true that Republicans fought regulation of the financial markets. But he says none of that gets to the overall truth of what happened. 
To say that either party had great foresight is completely untrue. So the blame for this is bipartisan. The blame for this is absolutely bipartisan. Both parties deserve a great deal of blame for what happened with the subprime mess. And to try and pin the blame on one party or the other really muddies the issue. A crisis like what's going on right now can't develop without everyone fueling it. I mean, we're looking at the biggest crisis in a century. That only happens when basically everyone drops the ball. So there's enough blame to give to both parties here. When it comes down to specific individuals, some individuals deserve a lot more blame than others. And the time is spending, you know, a couple of weeks basically trying to point our fingers at who deserves that blame. And when you're looking at people who are especially good or especially bad, were Barack Obama and John McCain, either of them, especially great or especially terrible? No. Barack Obama cares about a whole bunch of other things than Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and subprime. John McCain cares about a whole bunch of things besides Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and subprime. They spent most of their careers talking about things besides Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and subprime. This just wasn't a big issue for them. Thanks so much to Ira Glass and our good friends and partners at Chicago Public Radio's This American Life. You can hear that show all weekend long on Public Radio International stations near you or go to thislife.org. Thanks also to Charles Duhigg. He's also a good buddy of ours. He's over at The New York Times. Now, uh, the other thing we've been paying a lot of attention to behind the scenes we haven't talked as much about on the podcast is the exact mechanism of how the U.S. government is going to buy these troubled assets, this toxic waste that the Treasury Department is going to spend $700 billion on. Probably not a garage sale. It's not a garage sale, but it's not that different from a garage sale in a way. As David Kestenbaum, Planet Money's David Kestenbaum, found out, uh, he talked to uh, one of the guys who is on the forefront of creating the kind of auction that the government is going to use. The hope is that just by having the auction, it will actually start people trading these toxic mortgage-backed securities again. And I have to say that did not make a lot of sense to me. And I had a long discussion with Larry Ausubel at uh, the University of Maryland who's working on a design for the auction. And he gave me this example of a tiny market that was stuck. Uh, actually, it involves him personally. Uh, it, was, it was stuck because no one knew what things were worth. And then it got unstuck. And I know this isn't really relevant, but I have to tell you that Larry Ausubel has this excellent big walrus mustache. Suppose you own a house. Suppose that there are 20 houses for sale in your neighborhood and none of them have sold in the past year. What's your house worth? Know any good ways of doing an assessment of it? Know any ways of appraising it? If there are 20 for sale and no transactions are occurring? Yeah, I, 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 I add up the bricks and I see what I could sell the bricks for. There you go. <laughs> That's why you're not an economist. <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> to continue the analogy a little bit more, uh, I moved to Washington after the last peak in the real estate market. And the house that we ended up buying, it was one of two houses on a short block both of which had been on the market for over a year, both perfectly lovely houses, but both at asking prices that were really unrealistic. So we decided we wanted one of them, and we made what the seller surely viewed as a really lowball offer, but we bargained a little. It was a lot lower than what they wanted. We bought the house, and 
A few weeks later, the other one sold also, and at essentially the exact same price. So the whole notion is you want something out there that does what an economist would call price discovery, and once there is price discovery, then transactions can resume. So that's why you're saying once this auction is done, then maybe the market will function on its own. It's like you're saying that the, you know, the machine still works. It's just sort of out of oil and it needs to, the pump just needs to be primed. Well, markets have been used for thousands of years. It's not that suddenly in 2008 markets have permanently ceased to operate. It's a matter that the situation among financial institutions as well as the situation among mortgage holders, that is the house owners, is bad right now. And that has resulted in the market shutting down. It's not going to be a permanent phenomenon. And the better the market could unfreeze, the better we'll all be. In other words, these things are worth something, right? And anything that's worth something, there ought to be someone willing to like bet it's a little more or a little less. And you have some market for being traded, right? You're saying what has it seized up is this un- is real uncertainty. Yeah. So, th- so these... Uh, are securities that are certainly worth an appreciable amount. Perhaps they're worth 60 cents on the dollar, but nobody really knows what they're worth. So why isn't the market solving this, though? You think that someone would be out there, they have their model, and they say, ah, I think that's worth that, I'll buy it from you. You know, like, why isn't it happening right now? They're all terrified to buy, and they don't know what price to pay. Now, I have to say not everyone agrees that the auction will unstick the market for mortgage-backed securities. Uh, I was talking to Eric Maskin, who's a Nobel Prize winner in this particular area. He's at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study. And he says that it's possible that after the auction, people will still not want to trade these things. They still may have very different ideas of what the mortgage-backed securities they hold are worth. And in fact, he says it's possible the stuff left after the auction may be the things people disagree about the most. So he says, hard as it is to believe, after the auction, there actually may be less of a market for trading these uh, mortgage-backed securities. Thanks, David Kestenbaum. You know, uh, Planet Money's David Kestenbaum got a hard time there for not being an economist. You know, he is, no joke, a PhD in particle physics from Harvard. He was on the team that discovered the top quark. No, no dummy, our David. I'm blaming the top quark for what's going on in the financial world right now. Dan Costello joins us now. Hey, Dan. How you guys doing? Very good. Um, Dan, you are a former business reporter with the Los Angeles Times. By former, we mean until, what, six weeks ago? Until six weeks ago. Yeah, and you are heading off to graduate school at Columbia here in New York. Mm-hmm. And you've been a fabulous blogger. My wife, in particular, is a huge fan. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. So, so what are you up to, Dan? Uh, so today we uh, we took a question from a listener, uh, Jen Shelton, who uh, listens to us on NPR station in Texas, and she wanted to know something a lot of people want to know. Could she has great credit? She bought her house in two thousand one. She pays her mortgage on time, but she wants to know: Could the, my mortgage lender come and ask me for my my what I own today, all at once? And so. We've gotten that from a bunch of people, and we decided to try to find out. No, my gut sense would be, no, they can't just say, give us all the money today when they told you you had 30 years to pay it back. But you checked it out? 
We checked it out. So we called a, uh, a professor at Wharton who was uh, known as the Mortgage Professor. He's got a syndicated column. You can also check him out at uh, uh, mtgprofessor.com. So What's his name? Call. His name is Jack Gutentag. Jack, good day. Good day. Yeah, Gutentag. I like that. Well, it, it's, not, uh, it's not the kind of a question that, that I fielded uh, in a number of years, but I've been getting that question recently myself. Um, uh, in some cases, it's precipitated by something. The lender might be selling the loan uh, that the borrower is loan, and that generates uh, anxiety about what's going to happen with the new lender. And what you're describing is this process where the original lender of many mortgages in recent years sold those mortgages to other people, and then they were securitized into stocks and held all around the world. Yeah, well, sometimes they were securitized, sometimes they weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the lend- the borrower will get a notice at some point that ownership of the loan has been transferred, and ordinarily that's routine. But in a in the current state of the world, something like that can trigger anxiety because the borrower wonders, well, can the new lender do something that perhaps the other lender, the original lender, wouldn't do? A similar kind of problem arises when they get a notice that although the ownership of the loan hasn't changed, the servicing has changed. The lender has engaged someone else to service the mortgage, uh, and and that uh, that can generate anxiety. I got a letter this morning from uh, from someone who had a loan in good standing, like the the, the person who wrote you, Dan. Um, uh, he was worried about whether or not the lender could change the index used on his adjustable rate mortgage. Uh, he was worried because some of the mortgages of the type he has use LIBOR, which is the uh, rather than Treasury. And could, could you explain what that is, LIBOR? Uh, LIBOR is. It's an acronym that stands for the London London Interbank Offering Rate. It's an interest rate tied to the rate that lenders charge each other on loans that they make. And these were also always viewed as very low-risk loans, and the rate on them was very close, very closely aligned to U.S. Treasury rates. And many so recently, many mortgages and even credit cards and student loans are tied to LIBOR. So it is, yes, it is the interest rate that that. Right. So this affects everybody. It affects everybody who has a loan tied to LIBOR. But this this guy who wrote me uh, had his loan tied to a Treasury index and was worried about whether or not it might be switched to LIBOR because LIBOR rates have diverged sharply from Treasury rates recently. Anyway, the the answer to all of these questions is is no. Uh, those those things can't happen. The the borrower who has uh, a loan in good standing has a contract, and the lender, no matter who it is, uh, and the servicing agent, no matter who it is, has to abide by that contract. So they're not vulnerable to a demand to suddenly repay the loan. They're not vulnerable to a decision by a lender that uh, the interest rate is going to be raised, uh, and they're not vulnerable to the lender saying that they're going to switch the index from Treasury to LIBOR because that is specified in the contract. 
I mean, we are still a nation under law, and uh, the law of contract still holds. So that cannot be set aside, no matter what happens to the lender. Hey, uh, Jack Gutentag, thank you very much for that. And Jen Shelton, don't worry, you're okay. We'll link to his column at npr.org slash money. So keep sending those questions in through email, Twitter. We actually have a new Facebook group. I'll throw that up in this podcast blog entry. You can always write to us at planetmoney at npr.org. So we've got this one last piece to play. It started earlier today when this guy, David Folkenflik, he's NPR's media correspondent, came running in. He goes, you guys, you guys, there's this panhandler outside and you've just got to go meet him. And we went down. We found him on 42nd Street just off Times Square. He was sitting against a wall. Kind of an average-looking guy, you know, in his 30s, sort of dirty blonde, brown hair, scraggly with a beard. He had your average black duffel bag with him. He had a black hat in front of him. And I'd say there's maybe about three bucks, maybe not even, in coins in front of it in the hat. And he had with him a sign, and that sign did make this guy worth meeting. My name is Ron Martin, and my sign says, I will be suspending my panhandling campaign so as to focus on the national economy. I don't think, I think uh, the market is probably the uh, recipient of most of the problem, but I think we have enough people in this country and globally who are uh, removed from the stock market who are going to basically pull us through. They're going to continue to spend money, and that'll keep the economy going. So what's the last money you spent? The last money I spent? Uh, probably on beer. <laughs> uh, beer and uh, chips. What kind and how much? No, no, I bought coffee and, uh, coffee and uh, bagel this morning. But beer, uh, I don't buy Budweiser anymore, but uh, I think I got Coors. Do you remember how much it was? Yeah, I get a good deal. Got a dollar fifty for a twenty-four ounce. So, how's the take today or these days? Have you noticed a difference? Uh, it hasn't been too bad. It's it's been pretty good. I've gotten a couple of people even buy the sign from me, so make bigger money there. Wait, you've actually sold copies of this sign? Yes. Yes. That's that's enterprise. <laughs> I got twenty bucks for the sign. Thanks, boss. Happy New Year. Caitlin Kinney took a great picture of the guy, Ron Martin. It's on our blog. Thank you, Laura, and thank you, Caitlin. Uh, That's a wrap for Planet Money for today. Uh, We will be broadcasting from my living room on Monday. Seriously? Yeah. Well, it's Columbus Day. I don't want to come all the way in just to – so I'm going to – I got all the equipment at home. I can do it from there. Uh, And uh, we're going to bring you all the news from the weekend. Okay. Don't miss Ira Glass and Alex Bloomberg's special reporting on This American Life this weekend from Chicago Public Radio. And watch our blog. We'll be updating that all weekend, also probably from our living rooms, at npr.org slash money. I'm Adam Davidson. And I'm Laura Conaway. Thank you for listening.